Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Game of Thrones, The Reign of David. This series looks at the reign of David in the books of 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles to learn from David's victories and failures to see how we can walk more closely with Jesus. Today we're going to be beginning uh, a series that's actually going to run through most of the summer. Uh, That series is actually part of a much larger series that we have called Game of Thrones. This is actually kind of season four, if you will. Um, I've I've never actually watched any of the TV show nor read the book, but I do know that the topic, the topical matter of the series is very, very similar to what we're going through in the books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles throughout this series, which is, you know, struggles and sins and problems and, you know, warfare between peoples, all of which is the story of the kings and the priests and the prophets of Israel. And uh, so this is the, the fourth series we've done on this, and this is going to be covering actually 2 Samuel and uh, parts of 1 Chronicles. We're going to be looking at the reign of David in this series. And uh, today we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 1. I'm going to be reading verses 17 to 27. But this will be a good reminder. Though we print stuff in the booklet for you, and though a lot of the verses I use are going to be on the screen, there is no way when you're covering historical narrative, particularly Old Testament historical narrative, I'm going to be covering such big uh, groups of verses, there's no way to have them all on screens or whatever. So there's an old-fashioned habit called bring your Bible. It's a really good habit. I encourage you to do it. And you can bring a paper Bible, or remember, if you have a phone, you have a Bible. It used to be if you have a phone, you have a lawyer. Well, if you have a phone, you have a Bible, actually, okay? So bring it, and you can follow along. Each week, like this week, we're covering all of chapter 1. I'm just going to read verses 17 to 27 at the beginning. Next week, we're actually going to cover like three or four chapters, And I'll just read a couple of verses, but we'll kind of comment as we move along. It's just the nature of trying to to understand a historical narrative. You have to kind of cover uh, units of text. So it's good if you bring your Bible. So today we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel 1. I'm going to begin by reading verses 17 to 27. You will be able to follow that along on your screen or in your uh, welcome booklet there. So hear now the words of our sovereign king. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, and he ordered that the men of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Jashar. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. O mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain, nor fields that yield offerings of grain. For there the shield of the mighty was the defiled, the shield of Saul, no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, The bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. 
How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You are very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. A few years ago, I was reading uh, the book Lord of the Rings, or the series of books, Lord of the Rings, and in it they came to a major scene where one of the one of the characters, Boromir, had died. And the immediate reaction of his friends was not even to seek those who had killed him, but to sit down and basically write poetry and sing poetic laments regarding Boromir and how great he was. And I, I was actually uh, riding down the road to, to a class in seminary, and uh, I remember thinking, well, that, that's kind of weird. I don't think that's how we would have done it in the Marine Corps. I think we would have mounted up and gone after him right then. We wouldn't have all sat around and written some poetry. And I was struck by that, but then I remembered that actually in the Scripture, the, the warrior par excellence and the poet par excellence are both King David, the same guy. And in fact, in this text, he's doing exactly that. King Saul and his best friend Jonathan have died, and David's immediate reaction is to write a lament. And I... I also, the more I thought about it, realized that the author of the Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien, was in fact a survivor of World War I. He had fought in the trenches in World War I. One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, had also fought in the trenches in World War I. Both of them had been injured. Lewis had been fairly severely injured and brought back. They had experienced war, and yet they were these great literary figures that we love because many of the great literary figures of the 20th century came out of the crucible of war. So, so we see this linking between them, and today we want to look at this great warrior, David, who's really actually fresh out of his own battle, and he's lamenting. And we want to ask ourselves, why is he lamenting, what is he lamenting, and what does it teach you and me? Now it begins here in 2 Samuel 1.1 with the note of a king's tragic death. And there's kind of a background that's necessary because it just starts off, after the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. Now that's a weird beginning to a book, but actually in the Hebrew scriptures, 2 Samuel and 1 Samuel aren't two separate books. They're one book. Samuel was just one book. So this is actually carrying on the story that had been there in 1 Samuel that we had covered uh, last time we were doing this. And in that story, if you remember, Saul was the first king of Israel. He was anointed as the king. He started with great promise, but Saul was not submitted to God, not submitted to the word of God, not following the ways of God, and so God said, you're not going to get to be the king anymore. And God anointed David and raised him up, and you remember David came to prominence by defeating Goliath in battle. He led Israel in campaigns and wars, but rather than supporting him, Saul viewed him as a rival. And so most of the end of 1 Samuel is taken up with Saul chasing David around Israel trying to kill him. And at the end of the book, David's actually been forced into exile by Saul, and he's for a period of time with the Philistines, the great enemy of Israel. And at the very end of it, of 1 Samuel, what we call 1 Samuel, we've already seen that the Philistines defeat Israel. David's not allowed to go into battle with the Philistines. He's off in a separate area. 
The Philistines defeat Israel. Saul and Jonathan both die. Um, and David has found his own town burned down while he was gone and his wives and, and the children and all their treasure carried off somewhere else. And they go and they defeat this tribe named the Amalekites and they come home and that's the end of 1 Samuel. And so this is picking up from that because David and his men don't know what we as readers know. If you follow it in a, in a TV sense, they're jumping in in season four, so to speak. They haven't watched the earlier seasons. They, they don't know what's happened at the end of season three. So actually what happens here at the beginning is a battle report arrives to David and his men. We're told on the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell, fell to the ground to pay honor. And this is because there's about 80 miles between where we had seen at the end of 1 Samuel 31 and where David's at, Gilboa to Ziklag. It's about 80 miles. So it takes the guy three days, and he shows up, and he's got his uh, clothes torn. He's got dust on his head. And in the ancient world, does that mean good news or bad news? That's bad news. I mean, it's, it's apparent as soon as this guy comes up, this is not good news. But David and them don't know who he is, and they don't know what else has gone on. It's 80 miles away. They've not heard. So David immediately looks at him, and he says to him, where have you come from? This is in verse 3. And he answered, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. Now again, we know what's happened. David doesn't. And so he says, what happened? Tell me. And he said, the men fled from battle. Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Now what's kind of amazing here, actually the the writer of Samuel uses a lot of literary devices here. And if you really pay attention to Samuel, early on before the rise of Saul, the, the last great family had been the family of Eli. And in 1 Samuel 4, you see a very similar picture. A man shows up, uh, clothes torn, dust on his head, bringing a report from battle where the Philistines have defeated Israel, and it ends up meaning the death of a great leading family in Israel. In fact, the kind of ruling family at the time, which was Eli, the high priest, and his family. The same thing is going on here. So David doesn't fully know, but the reader should be paying attention and saying, this is not going to end well, because this is just like what happened to Eli. And the appearance is bad, but actually, as far as David's concerned, the story is worse. Because the worst news is not even just that Israel had lost the battle, but that Saul and Jonathan were dead. The, the loss was so great. You win and you lose battles, but when your king is killed, that's a disaster. Later on in the history of the West, in 378, an emperor actually dies as the Romans are facing some of the Germanic tribes, the Goths and Visigoths, at the Battle of Adrianople. And when the emperor dies, it really kind of is the death knell for the Roman empires that had been known before that. That's what's going to lead eventually to Rome falling and being sacked in 410. When your emperor dies, it's a disaster. And that's exactly what has befallen Israel. And so the reader... We already knew this, but David doesn't. And we're kind of being pulled into his way of doing it. So David's got some questions, and he starts questioning the messenger, and he says to the young man in verse 5, uh, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? Because, you know, this is not the day of CNN. You don't get this on your Twitter feed. How do you know they're dead? And the young man says, 
Well, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and actually in the Hebrew, the construction really stresses the word happened. I mean, it just, it just happened. At the, I, I was out there, and whoa, here's what happened. I was on the mountain, I looked, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and the chariots and riders of the Philistines almost upon him. And so uh, he's there, and Saul's dying. And then he says in verse 7 and 8, when he turned around, Saul, and he saw me, he called out to me, and he said, what can I do? Or, or I said, what can I do? And he asked me, who are you? And then you have to hear these words with their gravitas. This is like, Luke, I am your father. The words are, I'm an Amalekite. Now, this is hugely important. It's a bad sign because if you remember, Saul lost the kingdom because he was supposed to wipe out a tribe. Who was that tribe? The Amalekites. Unfinished business is coming back to haunt Saul. Okay? But more than that, and the young lad doesn't know this, he's sitting in smoke and ruins because Ziklag, David's town, has been destroyed while David was gone. And who had destroyed the town? The Amalekites, because they're doing what the Amalekites always do. Every time they show up in Scripture, they're riding into town, they're raping, pillaging, burning, destroying everything, and carrying people off. And that's exactly what had happened. So this young guy says, I'm an Amalekite, while he's sitting in the ruins that the Amalekites had caused. And while David's well aware, the only reason that God told me I'm going to be king is because Saul didn't deal with the Amalekites. This is an ominous turn in the story. And so the Amalekite continues on. He says, then he said to me, Saul saying to the young Amalekite, stand over me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood over him and killed him. Because I knew that after that he, he had fallen and could not survive. So I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Now this is a, a big moment in the story, especially if you followed uh, what's gone on, because the Amalekites claiming I've killed Saul. That's what he's saying. And in essence, Saul's sin with the Amalekites has come back to haunt him, it appears. But if you're a reader, you know from 1 Samuel 31, that's actually not what happened. Saul actually was there with his armor bearer, and it, him and the armor bearer did this with each other. So what it really appears is the Amalekites not telling the truth here. What he did is, he's one of the guys who's there on the side, and before the Philistines get in and find Saul and his body, he's picked the bones of Saul clean. And he realizes, hey, maybe this is a chance. There's that guy David, and Saul didn't like him, but maybe if I get this stuff and I go to David, there's going to be a reward for me. And so in a real sense, even though the Amalekite is lying, Saul's sin with the Amalekites has come back to haunt him. And the Amalekite picks his dead body for profit. Because just as a sidelight friend, when you don't deal with what God tells you to deal with, it does have a way of coming back. And it does have a way of haunting you and, and bringing death and destruction. So, but the Amalekite, his only reason for doing this is he's thinking, I'm going to give this to David. And David's been chased He's been pursued. Saul's been trying to kill him for years. So 
How is David going to receive the news that I finally dispatched this guy that gave him all the problem? David's going to reward me. I mean, this is oh happy day. I'm going to go from being a resident alien, a Malachite, kind of a lowly guy. Who knows what position David's going to give me in the kingdom? That's what he's thinking. Um, and it's also important to note here, this story, the, the reason about the crown and the armband, by the way, are being told is because there's going to be an issue that some people are going to say, hey, David went off and he was with the Philistines. The Philistines beat and killed Saul, and then David's got the crown and the armband. How did David get those? The writer of Scriptures wanted us to know David had nothing to do with the death of Saul. That was not his doing, it was somebody else's. And in fact, what we go on is we find the surprising reaction, which is not that David you know, sends out a tweet and says, hallelujah, it's finally come. Saul's sin came home on his own head. Okay, David puts out a Facebook post. That's what Christians would oftentimes do today. That's not what David does. Even regarding this man who's treated him wickedly, notice what David does in verses 11 and 12. David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and they tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Can you imagine if you're the Amalekite? This is the first thing that's like, well, that's kind of a weird reaction. I was waiting for the parade and the party and for you to anoint me as some great position. And all of a sudden, you guys are pitching a fit and whining and crying. I thought you didn't like Saul. He's probably a little bit surprised by what's going on here. And in fact, if we're honest, we might be as well. Because don't get religious. What if a guy who had spent the last couple of decades making your life misery, you had, you had gone from the heights of power and wealth and fame to being chased like a dog. And you're living in and out of caves. And you got a, a ragamuffin band of renegades around you, good-for-nothings, misfits, and malcontents or who've gathered to you. 400 of them were told out in, the, out in the thing. And then you're forced into exile out of your own country. Let's be honest. How would you react when you heard that that guy was dead? I mean, come on, I know how I would react. I'd be like, good, <laughs> oh, happy day. But that's not how David reacts. He doesn't rejoice at the death of his enemy Saul, but rather he mourns his tragic end. Part of what the text is doing is saying, what would you do? What would I do? How would I respond to that? We'll come back to this, but how did you respond when you heard Osama bin Laden was dead? Anybody in here tear their clothes? Sackcloth and ashes? Dust on the head? Anybody in here start cheering? And, okay. So, so ask yourself, how would you respond to a persecutor? It goes on, and then David looks to the young man and he says, uh, in verse 13, he says, where are you from? Because he knows he's an Amalekite. But David's trying to say, maybe you don't understand what you just told me you did. We know it's a lie. But David doesn't know. So he says, where are you from? And the young man says, I'm the son of an alien, an Amalekite. Which basically what he's saying is, I'm an immigrant into Israel. I've been here. I'm part of Israel. Uh, I'm, I'm what we would use the, the word a resident alien. And so David asked him, 
Why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? In other words, you're not somebody who doesn't understand what you're claiming to have done. This is the one that Yahweh anointed. And if you know who I am, you, drove, you came 80 miles by foot to track me down and to hand me the crown. You clearly knew the story. You ought to know twice Saul was in my hands and I didn't touch the man. Even while he was trying to kill me and he was delivered into my hands, I refused to touch him. Why would you think it was okay for you to do this? You knew Israel's rules. You knew who we are. You knew who Saul was. Whatever his flaws, he was anointed by God as king over the people. So how dare you raise your hand to do this? And so actually in verses 15 and 16, David says, you, you admitted I killed the Lord's anointed, and therefore, by your own mouth, you're going to be put to death. That is a capital offense in our country, and you just admitted to everybody that you did it. And so the young man is put to death. Now, in the text, David's reaction is being put forth as exemplary for you and I. He does not rejoice at Saul's death, but instead he defends and grieves over him. His primary concern, note here, is not his own good. David's thought is not good. Saul's not going to be chasing me anymore. David's thought is, oh my gosh, what does this mean for Israel? What does this mean for the people of God? The man who led us into battle is gone. The army is routed. Jonathan is gone. We are in deep trouble. That's what consumes David's thought. And let me tell you, that is the heart of a true leader. Whether it is in the church or if you're, you're thinking about who to vote for in the next election, or even if you're thinking about a boss that you're going to work for, if that person's primary concern is their own good, might I suggest you ought to look elsewhere. Their concern ought to be for the people who are around them that they are actually supposed to serve. That's what a good leader does. And David is actually doing this here. Now notice, what we're meant to get out of this, if you've been reading and tracking with 1 Samuel, is how different this is, what a contrast this is with Saul. Saul looked out for his own good, not that of a nation. He counted David's life as worth nothing, even though David was now God's anointed, and Saul admitted that he knew that. He certainly would have rejoiced at news of David's death. If 1 Samuel had ended with David dying in battle, there's no question. In 2 Samuel 1, Saul would not have written a lament, but rather a song of praise, a song of thanksgiving. What a contrast it is with David because Saul only was worried about himself. David is worried about the nation. So that's kind of the background. Let's dive into the lament itself and see the, the death because David not only does this personally, he then writes this lament before he goes off and does anything else. And this lament, I'm calling it a lament worthy of a king because I'm kind of doing a play on words I'll explain in a minute. Notice David laments in the second half of the chapter for Saul and Jonathan. And we're told in verses 17 and 18, David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan and he ordered that the men of Judah be taught this lament of the bow it's written in the book of Jashar, which is a word that means upright. The book of the upright is what that is. And so notice, David writes a lament. This is a little different than the laments in the book of Psalms. It's actually a different word. It's more like what we would think of as a funeral dirge. 
or an elegy in a funeral. Because you'll notice he doesn't really talk about the Lord in here or anything else. It's really about Saul and Jonathan. And the lament is for Saul and Jonathan. We might have expected there to be a lament about Jonathan because Jonathan was his best friend. But it, we're specifically told it's for Saul and Jonathan. And in fact, they're each mentioned four times in the lament. He does not focus on Jonathan any more than he focuses on Saul. And David not only sings it for himself, we're told he writes it down and he says, everybody in Judah, I'm, I'm looked to as a leader in Judah, and we're going to see in the next chapter, he becomes anointed as the king of Judah first before the rest of Israel. And he says, well, within my realm of influence, everybody is going to sing this lament. And the lament is this, lo, how the mighty have fallen. Notice in verses 19, 25, and 27, the phrase, how the mighty have fallen, is repeated three times. This is emphasis. It's three times, which shows that it's emphasis. It's at the very beginning of the lament, the very end of the lament, and the very beginning of the stanza that starts to lament Jonathan specifically. And it is also, it's, it's the huge theme is what's being driven home here. This, this literary device of th repeating it three times and then the places that it's at, beginning and end and, and the beginning of the, the final stanza for Jonathan, that device is saying, this is what the lament is about. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. And so here's what David does to say why this is important. Well, he says, first off, the mighty have fallen because Saul and Jonathan are the glory of Israel. And I can't put all these verses up, but if you follow along in your Bible, you can see what I'm talking about. Four times he refers to the mighty ones, that Saul and Jonathan are the mighty ones, or some translations will say the great ones, or a great warrior, because that term, that the Hebrew word there, is used for being mighty or great or even being a warrior. And he says that's what Saul and Jonathan are. They are the mighty warriors. Specifically in verse 22, he says, Saul and Jonathan are mighty in battle. David has fought beside both of these men. He knows what they are like. He knows how they've been in battle. And he says, this is a disaster because these guys were mighty. He says in verse 23, they were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Notice how he's just trying to build up. This is who Israel has lost. Verse 23, he says they were loved and they were gracious. And in fact, again, we can understand that he might say all of these things about Jonathan. Jonathan's his best friend. Jonathan said, look, I know I'm supposed to be the next king because my dad is, but no, God's anointed you, David. I'm here to support you, David. You can understand why David would lament that. But notice he tells us in verse 23, they cannot be parted. Saul and Jonathan were together in life, and they're even together in death. David says it makes sense that they were killed together in the same battle, sitting beside one another, probably back to back with one another, because that's the way Saul and Jonathan were throughout their life. Now, it's kind of interesting because actually Saul tried to kill Jonathan a couple of times because Jonathan was siding with Saul. I mean, was siding with David. But notice David says, ah, but notice in the end, they, they were in battle together, they, they lived together, they died together. And then he turns on and he says, here's reasons that they're mighty. Saul brought blessings to Israel. In verse 24, he's telling the daughters of Israel, you need to look, look at the very clothes that you're wearing that I'm telling you you ought to tear right now. They are fine clothes. They are 
full of ornaments. It wasn't like that before Saul came along. You you weren't dressed like that. That's a result of what Saul did and what he brought to you. And then at the end, David actually turns to his personal grief for his loss to Jonathan, his closest, most faithful friend. And I'm actually in the After Hours video this week. I'm going to talk about verse 26, because if you're aware, some people want to take this and turn it to that uh, David and Jonathan weren't just friends. They were actually homosexuals and stuff. And so I'm going to talk about why that makes zero sense from the biblical text itself. But I'll talk about that actually in, in the after hours so you can, you can jump on and see the video later this week. But he clearly is grieving for Jonathan. And so notice here, David views the loss of Saul and Jonathan as a tragedy that's befallen the people of God. He's not thinking, my bad days are over. He's thinking, this is awful for the people of God. The the guys who led us in battle, the guys who brought us prosperity, the guys who have made things better for Israel are gone. And I can't rejoice over that. I can't do anything but weep over what that means for us as a people. But secondly, David goes on and says, look, you got to lament because of not only what it means for us, but what it means for the enemies of God. And the enemies of God's people, the Philistines, are going to hear about this, and what are they going to do when they find Saul and Jonathan dead? Well, there's going to be a party among the Philistines. And so David, in verses 20 and 21, he says, Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. He's using that Hebrew device in poetry of parallelism, where you tell the same thing twice. And Gath and Ashkelon were two of the major five cities of the Philistines. They had five cities along the coast in Israel, and this was kind of their two leading cities. So it's kind of like saying, you know, don't say it in Washington, D.C., tell it not in New York. Okay, that would be somebody who didn't like America, that, that would be referencing America. That's what he's saying is, I don't want the Philistines to even hear of this. They shouldn't get to rejoice over this. And in fact, he says in verse 21, O mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain nor fields that yield offerings of grain. This is where Saul had died. And so David's saying, even Mount Gilboa, this is such a tragedy, and it's leading to the Philistines trying to rejoice. We ought to tear the house down. That mountain, I don't want it to get any dew. I don't want it to get any rain. I don't want it to even grow things that could be used as sacrifice offerings. The whole land should basically be accursed. And he concludes by saying, here's the reason. For there the shield of the mighty, that's that mighty one's, was defiled the shield of Saul, no longer rubbed with oil. Now, what's kind of interesting is David's doing a real word play. In the Old Testament, shield sometimes means the thing you put on your arm and you, you, know, you block uh, dagger blows and sword thrusts and, and arrows with. But what does shield also refer to sometimes in the Old Testament? The king. And notice he says the shield's no longer going to be rubbed with oil, which is the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is, it's no longer going to be anointed. David's saying, don't you see what's happened here? Saul's shield is fallen. And in fact, we know later that the, the Philistines have taken that shield, and they've taken it away. And it's no longer going to be rubbed down with oil in preparation or after a battle, because Saul himself, the shield, the, the leader of God's people, he's fallen. He's no longer the anointed of Yahweh. This is a disaster. And it's 
good for the enemies of God, so how could I rejoice over it? Now this is why I'm calling it a lament worthy of a king. Because friends, this is David showing his character. It's not only a lament worthy of King Saul who is dead, but the man writing this lament is showing the character that says, this is a guy who's worthy to be king. Notice in verses, again, 17, 18, and 24, as he's kind of laying this out and doing it, David's not just lamenting personally. He's saying, if I'm going to be a leader, you all need to lament. You all need to recognize what this means for us as a people, and I'm going to lead and guide you in this. You may be like that Amalekite and think I'm going to rejoice. I'm not going to rejoice. This is a tragedy for us, and we are going to weep for Saul and Jonathan. In fact, he even writes it down for future generations to sing, including that 3,000 years later, we're still reading the words, because David wanted Saul remembered. It's worthy of a king. If you're Saul, you have to look at this lament and say, wow, that, that is a worthy tribute to my kingship. But the more important point actually is, it's a lament that is worthy of the man who would be king, King David. Notice here, he's showing the leadership. He's getting others to join him in what is doing right. Secondly, notice that he does not just lament Jonathan, his closest friend. If you're going to be the king, it's not just about what affects you personally, but what affects the kingdom. If you're going to lead among God's people, it's not just about what you are bothered by, but what is deleterious, what is bad for the kingdom of God. And so David sits here and he laments Saul the king because he's saying that actually had an even bigger effect than Jonathan's death did. Saul was our king. And then thirdly, notice David's character by not pointing out Saul's sins or taking revenge at the time of Saul's death, but rather honoring the good Saul had done. Now let's be honest. Read 1 Samuel. What could David have said at this moment? What could this lament have looked like? It could have been, woe is me. I've spent decades being chased like a dog by this guy. This guy got what he deserved. And now that I got everybody's attention, I'm going to let them all know that guy's a dead dog. And before we think, we wouldn't behave that way. Ask yourself, if somebody had done this to you personally, literally you went home today and were chased out of your house and spent two decades as a homeless vagabond, wanted fugitive, chased everywhere you went, and eventually chased out of America, and having to live, among, you know, going down to Cuba when our relations were the worst with them under Fidel Castro, and that's where you're living, and then you hear you're allowed to come back home. How would you respond? See, that's what David is doing. And I want you to think, I just saw some examples of this. Just a couple of months ago, to my chagrin, when Stephen Hawking died, the famous physicist, I saw Christians put memes on Facebook saying, I bet Stephen Hawking knows he was wrong now. Oh yeah, he said there was no God. Can I tell you I learned nothing about Stephen Hawking about that? What I learned is a complete lack of character on the part of the Christian who made that meme and posted that meme. 
That is not a time to do that. It's not as if there weren't plenty of things that Stephen Hawking did that were brilliant and amazing and that could be celebrated even if the man's not a believer. But even if I knew that in his final moments he did not repent and come to Christ, even if I knew that, should my reaction be, ha, he's getting it now. Hope God just turns it up a little bit on him. That's what I saw evangelical Christians do on Facebook. There were, on the other side, there were people who excoriated Billy Graham in the days after his funeral, picking out anything they didn't like that Billy Graham had done, some of which they were wrong, they were actually honorable things he had done, some of which they were right, they were, they were things that Billy Graham later said that he was wrong about. But here's the chief point, is that the time to be pointing those out? Is that when we bring it out and we say, hey, I'm going to bring out all the guy's junk out into the street when, he, when he's still not even buried yet? So this lesson of what David's doing is very, very current. Friends, the inability to honor the good of those who have gone before displays a profound lack of character in a person, a group, a family, a nation. Let me ask a question. How many people that we might look at from the past can we dig up dirt on? Can we dig up dirt on all of our founding fathers? Yes. Can I dig up dirt on Saul, David, the Apostle Paul, Peter? Who's the one person I can't dig up dirt on? Jesus. So unless the only person we're ever going to honor is Jesus... There's dirt. There's bad stuff. Honoring does not mean I honor everything they ever did. Would it be possible to honor father and mother if that meant I have to say mom and dad never did anything wrong? No. It would not be possible to do that. But see, David here is teaching us this, and this display uh, of, that David is giving us here is a lesson for you and I. See, the desire for vengeance and revenge leads to heartache and ruin, especially for the one cultivating within their own soul. Because see, here's the reality. If David had been cultivating and nursing revenge and a desire for vengeance against Saul, what would have happened at the moment this came out? See, in that unguarded moment, it would have popped right out there. And David would have been caught that he had been nursing this in his own soul. But if he had done that, guess who's the only person that would have been ruined and destroyed by it? David. See, if I have a desire for vengeance against you, even if you've done real, actual wrong to me, who gets defiled by that? Me. It doesn't do anything to you. It's not altering who you are or what's going on. But I want to tell you, we have an almost infinite capacity to nurse grudges, to hold on to stuff. And then when trouble befalls the other person to jump up and say, yeah, you got what you deserve. Because that's the gospel, right? We all want what we deserve. Is that what the gospel is? Who in here wants God to stand up and say, I'm going to give you what your deeds deserve. 
That is not what I will be pleading on Judgment Day. Oh, Lord, replay the tape. Give me what I've got coming. Last thing I'll be saying, oh, Lord, let that tape be erased. <laughs> let the works of Jesus be given to me. But that's what we can do as believers. So see, this display of character is a sign that David's truly ready to be seated on the throne of Israel. Because character matters in a leader. Because so often what we see in these books is it trickles down from the leader to the people. And we have wrestled through this in America in recent years. And one of the things that again grieves me is, if I don't like the politician displaying a lack of character, does character matter? Come on, yes, it matters. That guy ought to be impeached because I don't like his politics. But when my guy acts the same way or worse, does character matter? Well, not really so much. What matters is the policies. Hypocrite. Ichabod. Glory departed. When, it, when a people do that, we are in trouble. That is a complete lack of character. And see, character matters because the pressures of leadership will reveal flaws and it will oftentimes create great harm. Consider character. Let me speak just specifically for the church. I watch time after time after time as men who have had massive followings within the evangelical church and people assume, man, they, they are awesome because they can stand up here and talk. Can I tell you, you can be a rank pagan and stand up here and talk? You cannot know Jesus from a hole in the wall and stand up here and talk. What matters is character. Look at the requirements for an elder in the New Testament. It's all about what kind of a man is this guy at home? What's he like with his wife? How is he towards his children? How, how does he handle money? Is this guy running around getting drunk? It's all about character. Except for in the church, we don't seem to care. And then when an event like this happens, we're shocked when that leader, we find out that their, their heart's full of ugly stuff because it just pops out on their Twitter feed. And yet David was not that way. Character flaws destroyed Saul and disqualified him as king, while character strengths paved the way for David to reign as Israel's greatest king. Despite his flaws, he's the standard to which all others are going to be judged. And it's because of the character that was being built prior to him ever becoming king. Now, how do we apply this word? Real briefly. First thing is we apply this like everything else by the gospel. Friends, when you and I die, I better hope Jesus speaks a better word over me than I deserve. I better hope his words to me are like David's lament over Saul. Because if he wants to find flaws, he will not need a platoon of angels to do so. They're there. The gospel, the gospel is I'm saved by Christ's righteousness, not mine. And I am saved by Christ's atoning work, bearing the wrath of God for my sins. Hear me, David's greater son gives a greater lament 
over you and I than David could ever give over Saul. And thanks be to God that he does. Because your sin is as bad as Saul's. And his righteousness is far greater than King David's. And what you and I have done to him on a daily basis far exceeds anything Saul could do to David. And if he's going to come back with, rather than a lament of mercy, a a song of judgment and justice, you and I are in deep trouble. And so, as in every other area, we live by the gospel. And that means I look, I brought up earlier with Osama bin Laden, look, he's a bad guy. I get rejoicing over that. But did we? I can tell you, I honestly did. I thought, oh God, another soul is now standing before you. And whatever else that man did, is he standing before you clothed in his own wickedness? Because I don't rejoice at anybody. Do we understand what hell is? I can't rejoice at anybody suffering that. I don't care who you are or what you've done. Much less somebody who's done far less to us. Because most of the time, when we're not acting in line with the gospel, let's be honest, what has the person done to us? I mean, they might have done some hurtful things. Do they line up with what we've done to Christ? Do they line up even with what Saul did to David? I mean, is it, who in here has actually literally been chased out of their country with a person trying to kill them? Anybody? I mean, raise your hand by all means. I didn't think so. So we're not quite rising to that level. David is lamenting and singing the gospel. Do we do the same? I, I urge you, don't live by vengeance and justice. Live by grace and mercy. Mercy triumphs over justice. Now that leads to the second question. That's our justification. In my sanctification, how is my character? See, this is a key test of David's character and leadership. Sometimes you find out more when your enemy's been put down than you do even when you were being chased around. Sad to say, the church, the church has done well sometimes in persecution, and then when she rose to power, there was hell to pay for the enemies of God's people. That's not a good moment for the church. David's character and leadership are being tested, and his reaction to Saul's death displays great character. All those years under persecution, how's he going to respond when the persecutor dies? He responds with great grace. He responds with great character. So here's the question for me. How do I respond to those who say and do harmful things to me? Don't try and pick somebody. You're going to have opportunities this week. Somebody will say or do things that are wrong. They will treat you in a way that is not right. We're all going to have this opportunity this week. How will I respond? When they slice and cut, am I going to bleed justice or mercy? Am I going to bleed law or am I going to bleed gospel? Because it's going to be one or the other. Second question that's teasing us out. Does mercy triumph over judgment in my words and actions? Or does vengeance rule my thoughts and actions? Sometimes 
I might not even say something. I might have enough character to hold back, but what I do is I go home and I nurse that thing. And I fertilize it, and I water it, and I let that thing keep growing inside me. And whose soul is it sucking life out of when I do that? It's my own soul. I'm feeding a monster when I do that. Which way am I doing that? It gets really quiet in here when I start asking these questions. This is hard stuff, isn't it? See, 3,000 years, same question that David faced. And you and I are going to have the opportunity this week. Which will I be? Law or gospel? Turn it a little bit. Am I able to honor the good that others do? Or is my standard, if you've done evil, no honor coming your way? Because again, that leaves nobody. It makes it really easy. You'll have monuments to nobody but Jesus. You'll have no heroes other than Jesus. But can I point out the scripture actually tells us there are other people that we should emulate. Look like Hebrews 11. Now Jesus is the ultimate hero, obviously. But go back and read Hebrews 11 and then go read the Old Testament. And sometimes you wonder, like, really, like Samson? Really? Because he seems like the kind of guy I wouldn't want to hang around very often. Who would like to have Jacob move in next door? I mean, seriously, this is, <laughs> go back and read Genesis and then give me a call if you'd like and I'll arrange to have Jacob move next door. Or I'll find the biggest charlatan and shyster you can imagine that before it's done, you will be homeless. He will have just, got, and yet in Hebrews 11, he's there because there was something in him that clung to God. Can I honor that in people? Or am I basically a dishonoring person? Do I trust God enough to let him handle others? Or do I take vengeance into my own mouth and hands? When we looked at the root vices back uh, during the Lent time leading up to Easter, remember I talked about anger and wrath. And the, the root of anger and wrath is, God, you're not running the universe the way I think you ought to be running the universe. We might not put it that way, but that's what's going on in my soul. If you would just do it the way I would do it, it's like the disciples. Lord, do you want us to call fire out of heaven and consume them? Remember Jesus with James and John? And Jesus' response is, you don't even understand the spirit in which I've come. I've come to redeem these people, not to destroy them. Which way do I do? Which, do, do I trust God that in his own time, and in his own way, he's going to deal with it. Am I David in the cave and I'm willing to say I'm not raising my hand against the Lord's anointed? Or am I the Amalekite picking bones and looking for profit? Which way am I? Friends, what we're, what we're talking about here is looking to God. God is the just ruler of the universe and he can be trusted. David had to go through all of this and what he's saying is I had to trust God through it all, and I'm not going to botch that in this moment. I'm not going to cry out for vengeance in this moment. I trust God. God is the just ruler, and he's also a merciful ruler. That's the call for you and for me. So what we're going to do, we're, we're not having the Lord's table this week, but we're going we're gonna to go into prayer, and as I'm praying along, I just want to encourage you, 
Think about these questions. And maybe the Lord's going to bring a particular situation to your mind. And if he does, now's a good time to say, God, I, I want that out of my soul. Cut that, draw that poison out of me because it's no good for me. It's no good for that person. It's no good for the kingdom. It's no good for the gospel. Because it's not, friends. So let's pray. Father, you have shown mercy to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we give you thanks that mercy has triumphed over judgment. But we confess that often we find extending such mercy to be difficult. Often our attitudes, words, and actions towards those that have wronged us are full of vengeance and judgment rather than mercy and grace. Father, we thank you that our father David shows us a better way, honoring one who had slandered him, lamenting his death rather than rejoicing, and fulfilling the golden rule, do to others as you would have them do to you. Father, we ask that you would form and fashion us by your Spirit to be people of the character of Christ, people who do justly, who love mercy, and who walk humbly with our God. Make us to be instruments of your peace in this fractious and fractured world. Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus, our merciful high priest, for your glory, for the spread of your kingdom, and for our own good. And God's people say, amen. Let's stand together for the benediction. Today, rather than doing a direct scripture, I'm actually going to take, this is an ancient prayer of St. Patrick for protection in the midst of a world. When St. Patrick was in Ireland, it was full of Druid priests who wanted him dead, who were calling down curses on him. And so this is a prayer that was probably written later, but it's put in the words of St. Patrick and it's called, it's part of the breastplate prayer, the shield prayer. I encourage you to receive God's protection over you so you can spread blessing to others. May Christ be your shield today. Christ before you. Christ behind you. Christ beneath you. Christ above you. Christ on your right. Christ on your left. May Christ be with you. Christ in you alone and in multitude, near and afar, for all you face and for all your life, that you may live in the protection and power of His blessing. Go forth blessed to be a blessing to all you encounter. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.